going to our message in the book of Mark. We're in one of the hardest chapters to interpret, uh, other than like the book of Revelation. We are in Mark chapter 13 today, which is called the Olivet Discourse. And to give you a little bit of context to this, um, we've been in the book of Mark since the first of the year, but in, in chapter uh, 11, Jesus entered into the city for the final time. This inaugurated his, 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 him as king, but his, his kingdom is coming on the earth, but yet he's being rejected. And so we've seen in chapter 12 that he has had debates with the religious leaders and and they've been ramped up to the point where they're sick of him. They're done with him. Which means that this is the last week of his life. This is the last week of Jesus' life. In a matter of days, he will be crucified. He will be killed. He will be rejected. And so after all of those debates with the religious leaders when he was in the temple preaching against them, um, in chapter 13... They go out onto the Mount of Olives, which is outside the city and up on a hill. And you can overlook the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And in verse, um, verse 3, it says that when he sat down opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately a question. So the context is... He's with his four disciples alone on the Mount of Olives looking at the city in which he's already pronounced a little bit judgment against the religious leaders. And then the disciples ask a question. So if you want to follow along, go to Mark chapter 13. We'll be in verses 28 through 37. But the disciples ask a question in verse 4 that sets us up. It says, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. So, last week we looked at what is it going to look like in the end. And in fact, the whole chapter of, of Mark 13 is talking about a theological concept called eschatology, which means the study of end times. Jesus himself is prophesying about what's going to happen in either a near future or a distant future or both. Now, there are arguments and debates about this, and I'm going to present both extreme sides, and I'll tell you where I land. There's, there's a group called preterist, which means past fulfillment, which, which would say interpreting things like the Olivet Discourse, which is also paralleled in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, it would say that all those things happened in the past. Everything that Jesus prophesied about, even in, in, in Revelation, and all those prophecies happened already. The futurist is on the other side. The futurist would say, yeah, maybe, maybe some things happened, but most, if not everything, that Jesus in Revelation is saying is all in the future. Now, I'm, I'm a partial preterist, so I'm somewhere probably not in the middle, but lean more towards... A lot of things happened in the past, a past fulfillment. And so with that in mind, this is how we're going to interpret the scripture today. And I'm going to give you reasons why I see it being that way. Because, again, going back to context, we have to understand 
what's going on. Why did they ask this question in the first place? Well, in verse 1, Jesus walked out of the temple with his disciples as they were going up to the Mount of Olives. And it says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then he proceeds, and then they proceed to then ask, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of all these things that are about to be accomplished. And so immediately it seems like context is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple and they're asking when this is going to be. But now in this view that I'm presenting, I'm saying that a lot of things happened in the first century, including the destruction of the temple, which we can go back in history and find, but also the full fulfillment of Jesus coming back to, to judge the earth and change everything and to bring about a new heavens and a new earth and to get rid of sin and corruption and evil, that has not been fully consummated or happened yet. So what I see in this text is a weaving in and out of things that are already and some things that are not yet. You, maybe you've heard that concept before. Already, but not yet. And so with respect to the destruction of the temple, I believe that's where we land in our first set of verses, talking about the fig tree. Verses 28 through 30 say, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and put out, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now you can see that I've underlined an important set of words there. It says, this generation. And so to answer this question, when will these things be, in relation to the temple, I believe that this parable, and there are two parables today that we're going to look at, which are stories thrown alongside to help us understand a spiritual truth. When he says, when he's talking about seeing the signs of a fig tree, you will see these things take place in this generation. This generation will not pass away. So what does this generation, now there's been arguments about what this could possibly mean. If someone is extremely futurist and thinks everybody, everything's going to happen in the future, someone would say, well, maybe it should say that generation, the generation in the future. Or maybe it means a group of people, like this generation, like, like a group of people that's just rebellious and rejects God, maybe it means that. But there's overwhelming evidence to support the idea that what he's actually saying when he says this generation, he actually means literally this generation. And what is a generation? A generation is a period of time between 30 to 40 years. 30 to 40 years is in biblical times is how in the New Testament generations are marked out. Even in the Old Testament, you know, after the flood when when the lifespans of human beings shortened. Using the word generation in this sense is talking about the people of Jesus' current um, surrounding. 
So his contemporaries, the Jewish people, everybody living in this era, in this generation, will see these things come to pass. And I will tell you that this came true. If you were here uh, last week, um, we got into what it might look like. And, and there was this talk of this abomination of desolation who entered into the temple. In fact, in, in verse 14, it says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So in talking about the destruction of the temple, there's some kind of thing that's, or person that's an abomination to God that's going to cause death, destruction, desolation. And that happened. Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. Now many critics who are unbelievers will look at eschatological or these end time passages and, and critique Christianity and say Jesus said near, the time is now, this generation, and they'll say, well, Jesus must be a false prophet, but in fact that is not true at all. The things that Jesus said did come to take place in the first century, but along with this partial preteristic view that I'm presenting, I also believe that there are, there are reverberations or types of the same thing that can happen in any generation, in every generation of Christianity from then to now. But this prophecy was fulfilled. The abomination of desolation, I believe, is a man named Titus, the Roman general, whom around 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, when the war of the Jews started, surrounded the city with his armies and eventually took over the city, started causing great tribulation, in fact, catching Jews 500 a day and killing them. 500 a day, killing Jews so much so that their bodies were left in the streets, and during this war of the Jews, they were fighting and having to trample on top of bodies while fighting each other in this war. It was, it was so bad that 1.1 million people were killed, and they were running out of wood to actually crucify these people. The Romans were causing great tribulation in Jerusalem. And finally, when they fully take over, General Titus and his soldiers end up in the temple. And if you didn't know, inside the temple is not a place that just any regular person could be. In fact, a Gentile, who's what a Roman would be, would not be allowed anywhere past the, the outer court. But when they came in and sacked the temple and destroyed it, they went in even to the Holy of Holies place where there's only one man that can enter once a year, and that guy has to be, you know, so qualified that sacrifices and cleansing and all kinds of rituals had to take place just for him to be able to enter. And so in Luke's gospel, it says, when you see armies surrounding the city, you know that its desolation is near. That's why I can interpret the abomination of desolation, in fact, was happened in the 70 AD, and it was probably talking about General Titus and his armies, because Luke gives us a little bit clearer version of it. That's why we like to go through the parallel texts. So that's why we can say Jesus is talking about this generation. You're going to see these things take place. 
Great tribulation is going to come. But what's the point of the passage? Why do we want to know when? Why should they know when? Because all throughout the chapter, he's been given warning. When you see this, flee. When you see this, run. Don't go back. Don't get caught up in your lifestyle, how you were living, and try to save any part of it. Don't go back to get your, your cloak or go back inside the home. When you see these things, run for your life. I've warned you, be on guard. In fact, verse 9 says, be on guard. 23 says, be on guard. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. We see this constant call in this chapter to be watchful, to be mindful, to stay awake. And so we see a fulfillment of this first part. And also, I just want to bring up really quickly, when it says, you know that he is near at the very gates, that could either be talking about the abomination of desolation or it could be translated better as it is near, like the coming in judgment is near, the kingdom is near. And again, Luke tells us, this is the parallel passage, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now we know that the kingdom of God is already on earth. Jesus brought the kingdom of God when he first stepped on the earth or started his ministry and as we've learned in the book of Mark he's gone all over and he's preached the kingdom the good news of the kingdom he says repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand come into the kingdom he said that was his job to preach about it but also when he was healing and casting out demons he was he was exposing the kingdom of God over this broken and sinful world and in fact when Jesus was accused after casting out a demon, they said, the religious leaders said, he casts out demons by Satan or the power of Satan. And Jesus says, if I do that, his house is divided and his kingdom won't stand. But if I've come to you and I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom is in our midst. The kingdom already exists. But... The full culmination of the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray about. That is something we need to continue to pray about, but we need to know our place. Where are we at in time, in history? Some things have already happened, and we're looking forward to Jesus Christ returning in all of his glory. But in fact, I would tell you that the preterist the one that's the full preterist, we're all Christians, by the way, whether you believe it's happening in the future or the past, would believe that Jesus, in a sense, didn't come um, bodily, but he came in judgment spiritually against the temple and against Jerusalem and Israel at that time. And just as I've been preparing about this and thinking about this, you know, reading Josephus, who was a first century uh, Jewish historian, he talked about the crucifixion of thousands upon thousands of Jewish people, and wouldn't you think how ironic it is that in just a day or two, Jesus is going to be crucified, and then a generation passed, almost 38 to 40 years, that thousands would be crucified the same way in which Jesus was? Isn't that vindication? Wouldn't you say that that's great judgment 
many people would say that God was involved, and I would certainly agree with that. God was involved with the judgment and the tearing down of the temple so that the ritualistic um, ceremonies could be taken away because the new covenant has come. All right. Now, moving on to the next part of it. It says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son. But only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. When is Jesus coming back? No one knows, right? We can't put a day or an hour to it. And I don't think that the end times uh, scriptures that we have are meant for us to be able to try to figure out or calculate when it's actually coming. The greater call here is to stay awake, be on guard, because you don't know when he's coming. But before I handle that, I want to talk about this, this interesting part here that m- maybe trips people up. It says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You know, some people who don't believe that Jesus is God would come to this scripture and say, you see, he was limited. You see, he doesn't know the end. He must not be omniscient like, like God is. But yet, Philippians 2 tells us something very important. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. What we actually see here is there's a, there's a submissiveness and even a hierarchy in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Jesus says, I don't know when it's happening, many people would say it doesn't mean that he doesn't have the omniscience of God. It means that God didn't give him that to specifically say. Because in John 8, 28 and 29, Jesus says this, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. I am he. I am, by the way, that's God's name. I am God. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but Speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You see, some would say that Jesus doesn't or didn't know the day or the hour because that wasn't a part of the message that God gave to us for him to speak. And quite frankly, I, I believe that wholeheartedly because it's not as if Jesus isn't ruling and reigning in heaven right now. He knows everything. He is God. He shares the omniscience of God. But as we saw in Philippians 2, in order for him to come down and be born as a baby, a helpless baby, there was an emptying of himself, a giving up of divine privileges, as the NLT puts it. He limited himself for the sake of love, for the sake of his grace and mercy. And I believe God hasn't shown us or told us the day or the hour because if we knew the day or the hour or we could somehow calculate it from Scripture, then we would probably just get lazy and procrastinate, right? Like, are you one of those people, I'm just going to admit, I'm one of those people, like, if I know something doesn't need to be done until, like, way down the road, I'm just like, you know what? 
we got this. I'm going to coast until the last possible minute, and then I'm going to get it done. Can I get an amen to anybody from anybody? Some of you are mad at me right now because I've admitted that. But I, I truly do believe if we tried to figure out the date, we'd somehow manipulate it. And depending on, you know, we, would, we wouldn't live in this urgency, this this imminence that, that Jesus could come back at any moment. And that's what I believe God has been trying to tell us through all of these scriptures is you need to stay awake, be on guard, be ready because Jesus will come back like a thief in the night. You don't know when a thief is coming. You don't know the day or the hour, but there's only something that you can do. It's be ready, be watchful, don't fall asleep. Even when Jesus, um, in, in the book of Acts, when he ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection. Sorry, the clicker isn't working right now. In the book of Acts, when he ascended, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is not for you and I to know. You and I are supposed to live just like every Christian generation past is supposed to believe that Jesus could come back at any possible moment. We must be ready. We must be on guard. And that's what leads us to this last part of the scripture it's another parable that Jesus says to end the passage. It says, It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come subtly, suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say all, stay awake. This is where Jesus makes it utterly clear to us that he transfers just this direct conversation that he's having with the disciples to what I say to you, I say to all. This is what we're supposed to get out of this entire chapter of Mark 13. Stay awake. What does it mean to be awake? It means to not be spiritually dull. To be able to have a, an illuminated mind, an understanding that keeps you waiting. You know, I think about, you know, kids. Think about kids on Christmas, right? They're so excited at nighttime, they almost don't want to sleep because they want to they get ready to open the presents, Right? Or they wake up early and they just bug you. You know, like, will you get up? Will you wake up, parents? And you're like, come on, can't you just sleep? It's, I believe Jesus is saying, stay awake. Don't fall into laziness or complacency. There will be time for rest later on in life. Now, not, he's not saying physically don't sleep. I don't want you guys to go, you know, overdo it with caffeine or, you know, other substances to try to stay awake. It's a, spiritual, it's a spiritual example, a spiritual illustration. In fact, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I believe Paul puts it in such a great, easy-to-understand way for us. 
In 1 Thessalonians, there's a lot of end times theology that you can pull from these, these books as well. Starting in, in verse 1, it says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, he's contrasting day and night and being asleep and being awake. And the Bible does this all over the place. You see, night and darkness represents evil, rep represents unbelief. It represents rejection of Christ, of worldly living, of sinful behaviors. But he says, we are children of the day, of the light. We are supposed to live with our lives transparent, to be exposed by the light, that everybody can see. We're honest. We tell the truth. We live in the light. We live in righteousness. We live in holiness. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Are you ready? Are you spiritually awake? I would have you read Matthew chapter 25 as an extension of Jesus' parables in Mark in the Olivet Discourse. And one of them talks about uh, ten virgins who um, are waiting for their master retur to return, and they each have lamps, but only five of them have oil in their lamps. And so when the master returns, they're able to see the path to go find him. But five were unprepared. They did not have the oil. They went to the town to try to buy oil, and they were too late by the time they came to the master. And he says, depart from me. I do not know you. And what I believe the oil represents is the, the Holy Spirit and this illuminating presence of God who is in every true believer that can see and know and believe and understand that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is King of the earth. He is the Messiah. He is the one who came to save you and me from our sins. But it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can know Him. And so what I believe... He's saying, ultimately, when he says stay awake, is examine yourself. How are you living? What sorts of things are you putting in priority over the Lord Jesus and over knowing God? Are you living a life that's, that represents night and darkness? Or are you living a life that represents day and light? We are the children of the day, children of the light. Therefore, we must stay awake. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Another one of those parables in Matthew 25 talks about sheep and goats. And there will be 
a great separating when Jesus comes. The great shepherd will come one day on this earth and he will look at everyone according to who they truly are in their faith. If they've trusted in Jesus truly or if he's just some kind of fire insurance badge that they add as an accessory to their life or have they sold out to him as Lord and Savior. And he will say... On that day, on my right hand, the sheep can come enter into my kingdom and sit at my right hand. And on the left, the goats will come. And on that day, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The greatest question for you and I today is on which side will you be when Jesus comes back like a thief in the night? Nobody will know the day or the hour. Are you awake? Are you asleep? Are you fooling yourself into thinking that you're a believer and thinking that you are with God in his kingdom or not? That is the greatest question that you and I must face and we must answer for ourselves and for those who are in our charge. And as I see this scripture and I see this parable, I I can't help but see God's church in whom he loves. It says he put his servants in charge, each with his work. The Bible says that Each person who is filled with the Spirit, who believes in Jesus, has a work, has a gift that they are supposed to use in edifying and bringing together the church. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. I don't know who that doorkeeper is, but what I do know in the Old Testament, the doorkeeper, gatekeeper, was the priest. And so he could be talking about the pastors or the leaders or the elders. And it's a scary thing. He says several parables in the New Testament about when the master comes, will he find his servants faithful? So I I see the church in this. Many people would ask, Eric, why are you going to plant a church? I would say that as I look out into the world, and especially in America, there are more... Churches closing their doors than they are opening. You know, part of being in the kingdom of God, I believe the kingdom of God is the Christian church. And we are to take the kingdom of God, the Christian church, to the ends of the earth. There's lots of false teaching and false prophets and false churches out there in the world, even in our very neighborhoods. And we need to bring the truth to them. We need to bring the kingdom to them. Keep the work that Jesus started and keep doing it until he comes back. Are you ready? Are you a part of his church? Are you serving him? Are you awake? I see the Great Commission. The church's job, as Jesus says before he leaves, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the good and faithful servant that God put over his master's household. And when he comes back, he wants to find his church actually making disciples, baptizing them in the truth, sharing the gospel, and teaching them Everything that he said, this is what I believe we are to be doing. The charge is for the church to be found faithful, making disciples and teaching them. That is what that parable is about. But it is also about the one 
whom doesn't have faith in God. At any moment, Jesus could come back and he'll break through the sky and it will be visible to the whole earth. Where will you be? What side will you be invited to be on? That is something we must all work out. Jesus came the first time, called Advent. He was born as a baby. That's what Christmas is. That's why we celebrate it. As you can see, we have all these wonderful lights that point to him. Jesus came to grow up as a sinless man, and he was sacrificed on a cross for our sins so that we could be made right with God. And now by God's grace, time has been allowed to tarry on and carry on so that men and women, boys and girls, could respond to the free gift that he gave 2,000 years ago. And it is by God's grace alone that he hasn't come back, torn open the sky, rolled up the heavens and the earth like a scroll, and changed everything. He's waiting on those who are going to come to know him in this generation, and whatever generation after that he decides to allow to go on. But just know he could come back at any moment. Where will you be? In right standing with God by trusting in Jesus by faith alone? Or will you be a pretender or left outside of the kingdom altogether? I pray that God in his mercy would give you the illumination of the Holy Spirit today to understand that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your kindness, Lord. I know that I've been stubborn, and God, if you would have come back many years ago, I would be separated from you. But in your sovereignty and in your mercy, God, you saw it fit to continue on so that I could come to faith. Many of us could say the same thing. Let us live, though, as if you could come back any moment, those of us who are believers. Help us to share by the Holy Spirit the truth with those who don't, know, don't yet know you. And Father, if there be anyone here who has not trusted in Jesus, have mercy on them, Lord. We pray that you do come, but we pray that people would come to know you before you do, God. But it's all left up in your hands and your will and your mercy. So we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.